Welcome to Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn. I'm Ann Thompson. And uh, we are very excited to have another industry guest here to dig into a wide array of issues that are pertinent to what we discuss every week. But I'm going to let Ann, since you have a longer relationship with our subject here, uh, set him up for us. So Tom and I have been bantering for many years. He's obviously the studio chief at Sony Pictures Entertainment. And he is he combines a lawyer's mind with a commercial sensibility. Yes, he is making bad boys, too, and cinephile taste. So, Tom, we're going to go right into your great success story at the moment, which seems to be that hanging on to the Spider-Man universe was a good strategy. You have a relationship going on with Marvel now. You've got an R-rated Marvel film coming up when Craven the Hunter, but you've mostly are cheering on the box office success of Across the Spider-Verse, uh, which is at $405 million worldwide and counting. How, uh, how did this happen? Why is it doing so well? Well, I'm going to tell you, Ann, I'm going to tell you the secret to everything right now. 35 years in the business and counting. And right now, I'm going to tell you and Eric, here it is. Here is the Arcana Arcanum. This is the secret. <laughs> this is all you need to know. Great filmmakers make great movies. That's it. Lord and Miller and their three yes. directors. Yes. Uh, there were super talented people on this show. Um, I would go so far as to say, in this case, you know, it's an overused word. You see it in every uh, every other trailer from visionary director. You know, everybody's a visionary. Well, in this case, they actually are. Um, you're dealing with real visionaries um, and tremendous creative ambition. So in, in uh, Phil and Chris, Lord and Miller, um, the three very, very talented um, uh, directors, the terrific, exceptional uh, producers that are on that show, uh, Amy Pascal and, and Avi Arad, who've been there, you know, birthed the idea years ago. Uh, it's, a, it's an exceptional collection of talent. Um, and I will say, I'll take a little credit for us, you know, our operations at ImageWorks, uh, which is the um, which is the execution pipeline for that, and SPA, Sony Pictures Animation, they're the visual um, dynamism and the boundary-pushing uh, look of the film is a credit uh, to those operations. That hadn't been done before. And many of the processes needed to do it, had to be invented to do it. So it was a collection of a tremendous amount of talent. Uh, and money. And money and time. I'll tell you that too, time. Uh, it reminds me, you and you and I are probably the only people old enough who will remember the old Horses Wells will serve no wine before it's time uh, commercials, but, uh, or maybe oh, those I, things have had a great life on YouTube. I shouldn't loop, loop Ann into that. That's very unkind of me. Thanks a lot. Just, Tom. I love those. Sorry, my apologies. I got off to a bad start. I remember it. And that's the case for this. We serve no wine before it's time. Um, the, the actual first release date that we hoped for, uh, got moved and we gave the filmmakers the time and the resources necessary to reach, to push, 
The other thing that's really interesting about that movie, and I, I've seen quoted back in connection with it several times, it's quite true, about Guillermo del Toro saying that animation is not a uh, genre, it's a medium. And I think that Spider-Verse is the probably the most significant commercial representation of that. There have been many, many artistic representations of that. But now, as you said, you have a movie that's over $400 million so far and counting. We're barely two plus weeks in. It is not an animated movie, and I'm putting quotes around that in a traditional sense. It is a movie that is animated. It is has a very strong general audience. It obviously has a family audience too. You obviously have uh, kids and parents and parents get the traditional family audience that you would see and expect to see on a Saturday afternoon for an animated film. They're there, they're there significantly around the world. But what it has, if you go on a, on a Thursday night, you're gonna see a lot of 25 year olds in the movie with their friends. And that is breakthrough. That's the first time really that that's happened to this extent. It's a credit to the to the to the filmmakers and the and the ambition of it. It's ambitious. I've you've heard me. It's say also that. hip. Hip, yes, it's hip. And and as you know, I mean, hip is like my middle name. Everybody, that's what they think about. <laughs> it's cool. It's in vogue. The kids this. love it. You see me in my old baggy sweater here. <laughs> hip, it's like my kids, Dad. You are so hip. I'm so not hip. I wanted to ask you, Tom, because, you know, he's starting out talking about this huge success against the backdrop of a really complicated moment for this industry makes this a great time for us to be talking to you. And, you know, you you have told us because of a, a media blackout, you can't talk about the strike. So we can't get into those specifics per se. But what I did want to ask you about was sort of a bigger picture question about just how radically this industry and the challenges it faces at have changed since you got into this game. I mean, you know, we're talking about a theatrical success and you're one of the few studios that really has consistently talked about theatrical success as, you know, your main kind of priority these days. Yeah. You mean since I got back, since I got into the business back in the uh, 1900s, is that really? Right. In the Lumiere days. (laughs) Yes. As I said to Cecil B. DeMille, I said, Cecil, it's a fascinating time. It's certainly, I have, because I've been at it a while, lived through various transitional moments. And back when home video was first, in honesty, invented, uh, when when I started off, you if you wanted to see a movie from the golden age, you either caught it on television at midnight or you went to a revival house. There was such a thing. There was no home video, there was no um, VHS, and then DVD, et cetera. There was no HBO. Many of these transitions have happened along the way. And this is certainly a dynamic time. Streaming has been a very, very dynamic change. But I have believed, and certainly this is Sony's um, position in the marketplace. It's a strategic choice. It's one we're very, not just confident about, but excited about. And I think in honesty, as we sit here today, uh, has proved its value, which is that I believe that movies in movie theaters are 
a vibrant, strong, viable leisure choice for audiences have been and will be. That's sort of a fundamental underpinning of a principle at this company. We are a theatrically led company. During the pandemic, what was happening was that people were making conclusions about long-term in a short-term crisis. And what I used to say during the height of the pandemic was, you know, in London, in the Blitz, nobody went out to nightclubs at night. But when the Blitz stopped, they did. Um, and the pandemic, thank goodness, and not entirely, but thank goodness for everything and everyone, we seem to be on the other side of it. And you see that we were talking about Spider-Verse, but it's not just us. There are many, many movies doing extremely well at the box office right now. Um, it's very, very vibrant. Um, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is it's fun. So during the pandemic, you didn't go to the movies. You didn't send your movie. You didn't have a streamer. I mean, it, it, no, it what we did an do, option. It, you sold it, things off and you kept other things. Well, we, we had to because the thing I'm most proud of about Sony, I mean, I'm very, very proud of many things, obviously, but one of the things I'm most proud of, and it's a great credit to my boss, Tony Vinciquera, and to Tokyo uh, and their support for us. But during the pandemic, when other entertainment companies were laying off thousands and in some places tens of thousands of people, we did not. We have not had large-scale layoffs through the entire pandemic. Uh, we held and we invested in our people and we invested in our, our, our uh, content. To do that, yes, during the height of the pandemic, when things were, theaters were literally closed, you literally could not go to a movie theater if you wanted to. We did license certain of our films that had originally been intended for theatrical. We licensed them uh, to streaming services. We retained certain rights. We They were split rights deals and things like that. It's complicated to get into it if you're interested. Um, but we, we did that for expedient reasons. It was not a strategic choice. It was an expedient choice. We got through the pandemic. We uh, stuck to our guns and we had no layoffs. Uh, and we came out, the plan always was to come out strong and vibrantly. And we pushed forward in the middle of the pandemic. You referred earlier to some of the other Spider-Man movies. Don't forget, we had in the, in the height of Omicron, that's when no Spider-Man No Way Home we released. We turned down, I can't even imagine, you, you wouldn't believe the amount of money that we turned down to put that movie somewhere else, right? Started, and we released it. And that movie did without China, without China. It did a billion nine at the box office. And everybody says, and I love him, and he's a great friend of mine, and I admire him, and there's no one like him on earth that Tom Cruise, you know, saved the box office, and he sure in hell helped. But I can tell you, Spider-Man was before that. It yeah. showed that movies and movie theaters uh, are is 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 enduring. And I think you're seeing that now. 
Yeah, I, I went to see that movie at a at a drive-in in, in Brooklyn with my my one-month-old daughter. It was the only way that we could get out of the house. It was that much of a sort of event movie. And I remember it was like, it was a packed drive-in movie theater. So, you know, you could feel that. Though I do think it's interesting talking about all this because in spite of the the prominence of the theatrical model and, and everything you're doing, it seems like you, you've done really good business with most of the major streamers. So I'm curious about what you make of that side of the landscape and who you think is, is doing, doing that well, even if it's not, you know, your core business. Yeah. Well, it is a part of our business and we do make movies direct for streaming. Uh, that's added to, to our business. Uh, my colleague, Elizabeth Gabler, who Anne knows certainly made a beautiful, lovely movie for Netflix last year, uh, Lady Charlie's Lover. We're making um, a big K-pop animated movie uh, at uh, Sony Pictures Animation we're making for Netflix right now. We have an ongoing uh, partnership with Netflix and we are we are in business with everyone because we are content makers. That's what we are. And we're in a reverse business. Uh, one of the more interesting things, which I'm sure your, your, your audience would be interested in, of the evolution and the changing times that you're speaking about is that this fall, uh, this uh, Thanksgiving rather, we will, Sony will release theatrically worldwide on a full theatrical window, Apple's Ridley Scott movie, Napoleon. Yeah. And that's a movie that Zach Van Amberg and um, Jamie Ehrlich made at Apple. They really made it at Apple for Apple, and they have determined that it is in the collective interest of their ecosystem to have a theatrical release for that movie. And there were many people who were interested in doing it, and I'm very honored and grateful to them that we were that we sort of won that Derby and we were chosen to do that. We being the what we are, the preeminent theatrical distributor in the world. And so that movie will appear in theaters worldwide with a full-on marketing campaign and then go to Apple+. Plus. That particular derivation of that model didn't even exist a year ago. Didn't exist. Hmm. Did, did you try to get Apple to get you on the Scorsese film as well? Or uh... well, The interesting thing about the Scorsese film was that that was all, always at Paramount because that, it were, that worked the other way around. That movie... Marty's deal had been at Paramount and Paramount owned that book. And so it worked in reverse order. Paramount had that decided that, that they couldn't afford the movie or didn't want to, I shouldn't presume. I don't know what their decision was actually, but they decided to have Apple make it, but they retained those rights. This is in the reverse order. And so it's very different. This is the first time, this is the first time that Apple themselves have made that decision. So but it seems likely you'll be doing more deals like this going forward. I, I hope so. I I I mean it's obviously up to them. They have a they have a terrific, robust pipeline of super films. I'm very jealous of a lot of the great stuff they have. And I like to think if we do a good job, we would be in line uh for that. But that's really A, it's up to them to decide what they want to do and B, it's up to us to do a good job. But it goes to your larger point, which is I don't believe that these, I, I believe these ecosystems can coexist. I've really always felt that. And that goes back to what I started to say before, 
which is every time a new in the entire history of the film business. And as Ann knows, I'm a, I'm, as we said earlier, I'm not hip, but I am a student. Um, and I'm a student of Hollywood history. And every time when a new technology has come into play, the nattering nabobs of negativity say, <laughs> it is the end. It is the death of cinema. Say goodbye. Say goodbye to the cinema. It is done. That is what they said when television was invented. Why? Why, Eric? Why well, did you go well, you out? Know, I mean, I do. I have answers. I have answers. I mean, it feels I, like I awful. Too. Why but, did you go out? But here's what's happened. So you when got mad at the media for doing that. You know. Yes. But here's what's happened each time, and it's happened this time again. What it's done is it's added value. It hasn't taken away. Television became a great value boon to movies because it was another avenue for the movies. The same thing happened with HBO, home box office, home. Why would you go out? Why? Streaming, why would you go out? Well, it's the answer I told you before. It's partly the simple answer. You go out because it's fun and you want to take your family and you want to see it on a big screen or you want to kiss a girl or a boy, as the case may be. But the true reason is, and this is the thing, cinema, movies, make cultural impact. They impact the culture. And when you succeed, why is Spider-Man for all the reasons and why is it, it's worked because it's impacted the culture. It's become culturally relevant. And when something becomes culturally relevant, then it has value. It has value in every window and it has enduring value. And if something doesn't become culturally relevant, if something comes and goes and goes poof, then it doesn't matter. So movies that work are movies that become culturally relevant. I couldn't agree more. And the rest of the industry seems to be coming around to your theatrical comes first model, which you never abandoned. No. And other people went into streaming, laid out billions of dollars that put their bottom line in a place that yours was not. That's why they had to have the layoffs, reasonably speaking, right? So, yep. yep. So you uh, did shorten your windows though, right? During the pandemic. So what's the new model? What is your policy now? The, the great thing about it, and this is, a, this is, you know, my mom used to say, it is an ill wind that blows no good somewhere. And, you know, the, the, the good thing that came out of the pandemic, other than the fact that my kids were forced to live with me for some period of time, that was good too. But, and this is what it should always have been, but things happen when they happen. Uh, is there is no formula now. There is no one size fits all. There is no model that used to be 90 days and that was it. So now what we do is it's very bespoke. We mm. craft the mod, we craft the windows, all of the windows for the particular movie, the time of year, the genre, the competition. We look at all of it and we shape it to the particular film. So I don't think you will see us ever on traditional home video going less than 45 days. That, that would be highly unusual. But for example, Spider-Man, because we 
believe, we'll see, so far, so good, that that movie, because it reaches families and general audiences and people really, really like it, we think throughout the length of the summer, we're going to do a lot of repeat business. We think people are going to go see it again in a movie theater because it's a cinematic experience. It's a big screen experience. And it's really uh, fulsome. And you don't get it all the first time. Uh, so we're on a longer window on that. We're going to be on a, you know, north of north of 65 days on that window. And then some would be 45 days. Some would we craft it individually. Do we, will we on occasion do PVOD uh, in between a, a high priced uh, premium window? Yes, right. We will on occasion uh, do that. We You've don't done do some business with PVOD, like or three billion or something. You made some huge number on PVOD, right? Yes, we have done very well. Um, but again, it's it's when, at what time do you do summit on particular movies at 17 days, at 30 days, at 45 days, etc. And some you don't do at all. So the great situation now, which I'm very happy about and is best, this is the best case for us. Because what we we don't have a streaming service that we that is our corporate agenda, right? Where we're lost leading everything to the streaming service. What we are, which is why we're a good place for filmmakers, is our my job and the job of everybody here is to maximize the value of each individual movie we make. Maximize the value of the asset. What is best for this particular film to you know, reach its fullest economic and uh, creative potential. So that lets us pick and choose. And right now, interestingly, the consumer is okay with that. The consumer knows it has, he or she has to do a little figuring out um, to figure out when and where it is. When you look at what Disney did with the Pixar movies that they put straight onto streaming, did they ruin, hurt, mar, taint their uh, their animation business when with and teach parents that they didn't have to come into the theaters to see these films? Yes, <laughs> that was too easy. Ruin? Would I say ruin? That's a strong word. That's ruin a strong. Is, ruin hopefully, is strong. it'll come back. Hopefully, it'll come back. Yes, hopefully, it'll come back. We need it to come back. I'm root for them. I want it to come back. But hurt, mar, yes. But they weren't alone. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of people were doing a lot of silly things because it's hard. You know, there's a little quote that I wrote. I, I have it at my desk at home, and I don't know where I got it, but I saw it and I, 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 I wrote it down uh, during the pandemic when it was a scary time. And, and the quote said this, it says, don't try to calm the storm, calm yourself and the storm will pass. Okay. Don't overreact and throw one of the great models, great economic creative models ever out the window because you're in the middle of a crisis. Crisis management requires above all else, it requires calmness, calm on the bridge. Be calm on the bridge. Look at the entire 
circumstance. Think what is going to happen. Don't think about only today. Think about tomorrow and next year. So there were a lot of honestly silly things that were done in panic and that didn't really have the longer term perspective. One of the great things, one of the reasons I adore uh, working and feel incredibly lucky and privileged to work at Sony, to work for Tony, uh, to work for the leadership in Tokyo is they, they have a long view and they understand that it's not about quarter to quarter. It's about managing for the long haul and the overall health of the organization. So yes, I think that was a very unfortunate thing that, that Pixar did at the time. And I think they're still suffering for it. I think they'll eventually get out of it, but they were not alone making some, shall we say, rash choices. Well, that's an extension of that. I wanted to ask you about the specialty business um, because, you know, we haven't really dug into that. And earlier you you had asked, you know, sort of why, why does everyone always keep saying, well, you know, things, things are dying, cinema's over or whatever. Well, the art house, the specialty business, has always had that challenge and especially now. And I, you know, I, I think for historical context, it's worth noting that you started Fox searchlight, which is now searchlight within Disney. And of course that is also a big open question given their Hulu situation. So, so what do you make of, you know, that well, space now? I, I'll tell you, I think that's a, that's an interesting one. And for the three people that might actually be watching the video, I'm going to turn my camera up. And if you see those two posters on the back up there, that's a poster of Down by Law and Stranger Than Paradise. Down by Law <laughs> nice. film was the first film I ever produced. So my indie bona fides, I put up against anybody. <laughs> Maybe not Anne's, but second only to Anne's, I'll, I'll hold out my my, my indie cred. Well, you got Maybe. Sony Pictures Classics working <laughs> for you. Yeah. You know, Tom and Michael at Sony Pictures Classics, who are fabulous and great colleagues of mine. Uh, we talk about this a lot. In fact, we talked about it just last week. Uh, I think in truth, that that traditional long rollout searchlight, the searchlight release, what I did for many, many years at Searchlight, I, I actually think that is in peril. That is because... Not that those movies are not significant, they are. Not that they actually, going to what I said before, don't still make cultural impact, they do, right? To a certain segment of the audience. But actually the delivery mechanism for that is better at home. And so what, what happens is that they penetrate the culture theatrically, but then they can be readily consumed uh, very satisfactorily in many, many, through many, many at-home avenues, whether it's PVOD, whether it's traditional uh, home entertainment EST, or ultimately they go to a um, an SBOT service. So I think the, the old searchlight rollout, and we used to roll those movies out over you would also have a six, six, eight week rollout. I don't believe that is, I think that will be the exception, not the rule anymore. And hmm. 
if you think about it, um, and they're an excellent company, A24, first-rate company, you notice I only say good things about all my competitors. That's the thing, because they're very worthy. Everywhere, everywhere, Every, everything, everywhere, everywhere, all everything, at once. Everywhere, all again. Um, obviously, that happens, so it can happen. But it's far less typical than what you have last year, a bunch of more traditional, older skewing Tars and Banshees movies that that don't break through to the box office levels that they used to. So you have to learn, as we've learned at Sony Pictures Classics, and I'm sure as the other companies have learned, you have to learn to monetize those films in other ways. And that's where PVOD and EST is very valuable and very important. I don't think that the independent aesthetic will disappear. Mm. There will always be new filmmakers pushing the boundaries, making, breaking through. There will always be new voices coming through. And in many ways, in the streaming era, it's somewhat easier for those voices uh, to find an avenue. So I think from a creative point of view, it's very healthy. Yeah. From a, from a distribution point of view, I think the old model, model is imperative. But the streamers don't have the ability to create talent and make them into names, make them into movie stars the way the theatrical universe does. Are you agreeing with Quentin Tarantino that movie stars don't exist? Or do you still believe in Jennifer Lawrence and Will Smith? Well, I'd be surprised if Quentin Tarantino ever said movie stars don't exist. But oh yeah, he was saying it in the context of really Marvel, the kind of Marvel context of you know th those aren't movie stars; they're they're stars because they're playing these superheroes essentially. Well, that that's the IP is the is the star there. But no, I believe that movie stars are more valuable than ever. Movie stars are among the greatest things. They're fantastic. They're like sports stars. You, that's what they are. They're special things. God made special, special beings. He made, you know, LeBron James and he made Lionel Messi and he made Jennifer Lawrence. You make some people are special. And it's great to have special people in our lives who can do special things and can touch us in a unique way and, and move us and uh, become part of how we relate to the world. It's great. It's like, what's Barack Obama? He's a movie star. What's Steph Curry? He, he's a movie star. So what's Tom Cruise? He's a movie star. But are there young movie stars? That's where Jennifer Lawrence comes in. So here's my thought about that. There absolutely are. I mean, they're, they're just rare and they're hard to come by. And as I said, I've quoted this before and I stand by it. Streaming does not make movie stars. It doesn't make movie stars because it doesn't make cultural impact. TV streaming series do. You could you you come off of uh, a series where you have six, eight, 10, 12 episodes to make impact uh, in the culture. You can one-off movies. I don't know anybody who's become a star off a one-off streaming movie. But I know is Tom Holland a movie star? Yes, he is. You just look at what happened when he went from Spider-Man, where that to Uncharted, tremendous result. Uh, for us in Uncharted. So are there young movie stars? Yes. Um, they're, they're growing, they're coming. 
they take steps and steps and steps. We have watched this fall. I mean, this Christmas, we have a movie with uh, a young woman named Sydney Sweeney. Um, and it's a really R-rated, sexy, fun. Uh, yeah, and she's Lotus. really, she obviously was discovered on White Lotus. So it's sort of the next, um, next step level. Yeah, right. in a way. So those things have to be built. They have to be built. Um, and it is true. And if this is what Clinton was saying, he's right. And trust me, Clinton's right about everything, uh, as I've learned. Um, yeah. That's that, a good way uh, to, to pitch him on his next movie, huh? Yes. <laughs> no, actually, the truth of the matter is like really good directors, real directors. And I've worked with pretty much all of them. They actually, the best, don't want to be yes to death. They actually don't. They want to make a decision. They want to be supported. And they want to know that you're there for them, what they decide, but they actually want, you know, intelligent counsel. But anyway, the, 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 there aren't as many opportunities because a lot of the big theatrical movies are IP driven, but, and that's the nature of the world today. And that's a change from certainly 10 and 20 years ago. But when they pop through, they 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 still stick and they matter. They matter a lot. I mean, you mentioned it. We have this rom com. I mean, I'm not right. It's not a rom com at all. The Sydney Sweeney movie is a rom com, but the uh, Jennifer Lawrence No Hard Feelings is a is a outrageous comedy. And although I should say it's more it's more something about Mary or risky business. It's sweet. It's not American Pie. Uh, it's a it's ultimately sweet story full of heart and decency and goodness. It's very, very funny. But she is fantastic in the movie. She's fantastic. She has that thing, that Carol Lombard thing where she, you're looking at her and she's devastatingly beautiful, but she can send herself up and make fun of herself. And it's very brave, as people will see when they see the movie. It shows a lot of guts. Um but dying is easy and comedy is hard. And people who have the exquisite comic timing that she has are rare. So it's both that, yes, she's a movie star and people want to see her do things, but she's a movie star because she's talented because, because she's better than the average bear. She's great. And that's why movie stars are special. So you made one of the best movies ever when you were at Fox, Peter Weir's Master and Commander. We've talked about this before. I love that, that there was this moment where you, how did you, tell us how you got him to make the movie for you. This is one of your stories. Well, I, I got him. It's like, trust me, my wife didn't agree to marry me the first of the first five times I asked her either. So you you have to you know no is just the first step to yes um no director ever turned me down more times than peter weir ever turned me down which was that i i'll try to tell the shorter version of a long story it's kind of one of my favorite stories too because i love all my children but that movie is deeply personal to me i had to become the head of a studio to get the movie made i promised Patrick O'Brien before he died that somehow I would get it made um, but it wasn't an easy movie to make um, and it was against conventional wisdom in a lot of ways 
And I always felt that there were only a handful of filmmakers on earth who could do it and do it justice and do justice to Patrick O'Brien and ultimately get the kind of star casting that we needed and, and, and justify making a hundred plus million dollar movie about the British Navy with no women in it that all took place on a boat. Um, it was, hello. And first on that list was Peter Weir, who I always admired. I worshiped Peter Weir. Peter Weir lived in Australia and would every once in a while, he would come to Hollywood to see what there was. And you meet with Peter Weir and every time, and I knew I had heard that once for, I think when he made Truman show, they asked him what he like a gift and what he asked for. This was my secret tip was he wanted a set of the Patrick O'Brien books. So I knew he had read the books. So I met with him. I said, Peter, well, we have this, we have this, we have this, but how about master and commander? He was like, Nope. <laughs> okay. And then I was thinking at the time I was working on Moulin Rouge and we were shooting in Australia. And I flew to Australia. I was in Australia a lot. I went, I saw Peter Weir, this, 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 Peter, master and commander. Uh, no. Uh, fine. So then finally, like three years later, I heard Peter Weir was coming to LA again. The story of it is, and I'm looking at it right over here in my office, the object of this story is that in the British Navy, when you got command, when you got your command, the symbol of the command was the sword. You got a sword and that was, that represented the command of the ship when you finally became a captain. So again, I'm in my office. I meet with Peter Weir. I said, Peter, forget all these other movies. And I reached behind my chair and I had had the prop department make a beautiful British naval lieutenant's sword. And I had the sword and I reached out to Peter Weir and I said, Peter, you need to take command of the surprise. The surprise being the name of, the, of Jack Aubrey's ship. And Peter said to me, he said, I'm not going to do it, but can I keep the sword? <laughs> and I said, yes, the sword is yours. He couldn't check it. He flew back to Australia and he had to put it in his bag or something because he couldn't <laughs> take it. And he called me about a week later and he said, all right, I accept the command. And one of my great, um, I don't keep a lot of mementos around. If you could see around my office, I have the privilege, the impossible thing in life. I'm just some kid from Baltimore. And this is actually, I'm talking to you from Louis B. Mayer's office. Um, that's where I sit. Uh, but I don't keep a lot of mementos around because there'll be time enough for that. But I do have over there the sword, which Peter gave me back um, okay. uh, uh, after the movie was nominated for 12 Academy Awards. And I'm very proud of it because of A, because I think it's a wonderful movie and I loved it and believed in it. But it's typical of what the life of someone who does what I do do. We are a much maligned group and everybody thinks, oh, it's the Philistine studio. It's not really true. The people I know who do what I do really love movies. You have to stick out for them sometimes. You got to 
you're going to put yourself on the line for them and for the artists involved. And that can be heartbreaking, but it can be wonderful. But you might not be able to make it now. Yeah, it would not be so easy, I suppose, no, unless you made an Apple deal. <laughs> um, it would not be so easy now. It would be oh. tough. In the interest of time, because because we've been going on, but I wanted to ask one more question. Sort of a, that's a, an amazing story you just told. Yeah, this is the problem. You get me, and you get a lot of volubility. That's that 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 you're stuck. That's what we love you for. We embrace we it. That. We embrace it. And I and right. I guess sort of just listening to that story. One one thing I I did want to point out right quick is that you know that. The work you do is not just about the movies; it's about the relationships with the with the filmmakers, with the talent behind the camera. Um, this is not a strike question; it's a question about technology and the extent to which you think that the way that technology is being, you know, pushed right now um, has created this kind of ex existential anxiety around, like, what is the future of filmmaking? Could filmmakers be replaced by computers? I mean. Do you see that as something that could actually happen? Yeah, it's, I'm glad you asked that question. I think I can answer that without violating anything about the the agreement that folks won't talk about the things. Is that because that is a much that is a question about art, really? Um, and I'll tell you, I believe. Let me answer this fully, because on the one hand, I believe that AI is scary as shit. And when you have a guy who invents AI and he goes up to Congress and he says, uh-oh, I did this, I, which is what happened. I put this out in the world. You guys better do something about it, right? That's scary. And for a period of time in my life, I was worked with Steven Spielberg on a project called Robo Apocalypse. And trust me, bad shit can happen. So you don't seriously think that they can't figure out the nuclear codes? I uh, hello. So I think AI is potent and deeply significant. Interestingly, I think in my area, in the in in this world, I don't think so because I believe that creativity is the most fundamental human characteristic, and having spent a life, my adult life. Uh, in, you know, dealing with the oxymoronic nature of managing creativity. No, I don't believe that AI can replace creative genius. You, you mentioned maybe this is a good way to circle back and put up, you know, a nice, as if we planned it this way. You, you start off talking about Spider-Verse. Do I think that, a, that the most incredible artificial intelligence in the world could make that? No, I don't, actually. I don't. I think creativity is fundamentally human. Is AI a tool? Absolutely. And a lot of the panic about this is overwrought. It's confusing the use and a tool with, a, with fundamental human qualities. So are you going to have a... a change yes in the industrial revolution when the loom was invented the people who used to stitch hand by hand didn't do it anymore the loom did it right when cgi was invented you could make a dinosaur in a in 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 jurassic park and you could have 
hundreds of thousands of of people in the armies of Sauron in in Lord of the Rings because of computer they are tools but could you have Lord of the Rings without Peter Jackson I don't believe so and this I am allowed to speak about because the DGA they haven't they haven't uh, I don't think it's been fully ratified yet but there's an agreement reached with the with the DGA which has a nice framework for AI which recognizes it as a tool as opposed to in our industry a creative uh, human being replacement so um and I, but I will say this that's not legislatable you can't legislate that you can't put rules on it any more than you could legislate the industrial revolution or you could have legislated and told people not to inter, uh, invent the internet and will not necessarily in our profession, but in other areas, the same way technology always, as it moves forward, eliminates some jobs and creates some other jobs. That is a, that is a reality. Um, that's what the loom did. That's what the automobile did, but creativity to me, no. There is more fear than is warranted because I think true creativity is the most individualistic and the most deeply human characteristic that exists on earth. You've given us a lot of time. I really yes. appreciate it. Thank very you for welcome. being here.